Let's stand together, brothers and sisters, for the reading of God's Word. We are continuing forward in the book of Acts, still in chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 17 as our verses of focus. I'll read from verse 5 through to verse 24 of chapter 12. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So, when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now, Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So, on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Please be seated. (laughs) 
My soul, ask what thou wilt. Thou canst not be too bold, since his own blood for thee he spilt. What else can he withhold? Surely John Newton, the author of this hymn, 1779, the hymnal tells us, understood God's grace in a special way. And he writes some words to us uh, by way of introduction to this sermon today from his letters. Let us remember what great things the Lord has done in answer to prayer. When sin had given Sennacherib rapid success in his invasion of Judah, he did not know that he was no more than God's act, axe, no more than God's axe, or a saw in the hand of God. He ascribed his victories to his own prowess and thought himself equally sure of capturing Jerusalem. But Hezekiah defeated him upon his knees. He spread Sennacherib's blasphemous letter before the Lord in the temple and prayed. And the Assyrian army melted away like snow. When Peter was locked up and chained in prison, the chains fell from his hands. The locks and bolts gave way and the iron gate opened while the church was united in earnest prayer for his deliverance. Brothers and sisters, the Christian response to any crisis, to any crisis, and really to any triumph, really to anything, especially in our text today, the Christian response to crisis is to pray. Crisis time prayer is described in chapter 12, verse 5, in this way. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. This constant prayer, we looked at it last week, that word means also fervent prayer, shows us all how a faith-filled church responds to persecution, which is a particular type of crisis. Their ongoing prayer was focused upon an ongoing dire situation. Peter's ongoing imprisonment and his upcoming trial that likely would have led to his execution. They had the necessary faith in God to gather together at night and continue in fervent prayer for Peter. And it likely was a risky thing for them to do this, or it certainly would have felt risky given Herod's recent behavior. Yet while they surely believed that God could deliver Peter as they cried out to God, they were very uncertain, it seems, as to whether God would deliver Peter or not. Think of it. James, the brother of John, had been killed by Herod, killed by the sword. And the Jews are all stirred up and excited about Herod's actions against the church at this time. And now Peter has been thrown into prison awaiting trial. Things appear to be getting bleaker by the moment. The power of Herod and the tide of events crash upon their minds as they pray. It seems as though they might have felt as if the world was closing in upon them at this time. The effect of their trying circumstances upon their wearied souls becomes quite evident in their, evident in their response to Peter's deliverance. They had the faith to ask God to deliver Peter, 
But they didn't have the faith to believe when it came to pass that it had actually happened. Now, I think the cry of a desperate father helps us understand today's text. Seeking his son's healing, this desperate man has sought Jesus after the disciples have failed. You probably recall the story after the glorious transfiguration of Christ there on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's come down and the disciples have been unable to deliver this boy. And here's that exchange. Jesus said to him, to the father of the boy, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. So I think these will be helpful ideas for us to consider as we're going through today's text together. First we'll look at Peter's arrival at this prayer meeting in verse 12. And then Rhoda's gladness and a closed gate in verses 13 and 14, which really stand as a contrast to the one that opened of its own accord just previously. And then verses 15 and 16, the unbelief and astonishment there of the disciples. And then verse 17, Peter retells the story and gives instructions and departs. And we'll note how Peter gives glory to the Lord, even though it was an angel that was there. And then, as usual, some questions to know and to love and to obey God. The title of the sermon is, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. So Peter arrives there at this prayer meeting. The text says, so when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. When, we had, when he had considered this, is what we're told. So Peter has come to himself. He's no longer wondering if this, if this is all just a vision. He's now fully aware that an angel has miraculously delivered him from his chains and from his imprisonment. And he's there standing in the street and he's free. What happens next? He came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. He likely knew where he would be received and where he would be loved. And perhaps he even knew the church would likely be there together praying. He may not have known for sure, but he probably wasn't surprised. Now, think of it. The hospitality and the service of this particular woman, Mary, and this particular Mary is only mentioned once. There's a lot of Marys. There's six of them in the New Testament we have to try to keep straight. This Mary, uh, the mother of John Mark, is mentioned just this one time. Now, we see that she opened her home to God's church in Jerusalem, probably not just this one time. And this hospitality, this love of God's church expressed by this faithful woman is put to use by the Lord in this grand story of delivering Peter. It's instructive to us about the importance of hospitality. Commentary says he went directly to a friend's house, which it is likely lay near to the place where he was, It was the house of Mary, a relative of Barnabas, and mother of John Mark, whose house, it should seem, was frequently made use of for the private meeting of the disciples, either because it lay obscure or because she was more forward than others were to open her doors to them. The church in the house makes it a little sanctuary. Now, I changed that one word there to, you'll see the brackets, to relative 
because there's a little bit of uncertainty about the relationship there. <clears throat> a little bit more about Mary, the mother of John Mark. This Mary is a follower of Jesus and an evidently wealthy woman who placed her house, a substantial house which had an outer gate, at the disposal of the congregation of believers in Jerusalem. As she is mentioned without a reference to her husband, she was presumably a widow, unless her husband tolerated Christian meetings in his house, despite not being a follower of Jesus, which seems less likely. John Mark, her son, is mentioned on account of his role in the subsequent account of the missionary work of Barnabas and Paul in the cities of Cyprus and southern Galatia. And Paul describes him in Colossians 4.10 as the cousin of Barnabas. So briefly, we're going to just kind of take a little bit of a tangent here and look at this. The King James Version in Colossians 4 verse 10 says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom ye received commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. So you see here that the King James Version translates the Greek here as if Barnabas, via his sister Mary, is the uncle of Mark. So the King James translates it as if Barnabas and this Mary are siblings, and that Mark is his, therefore his nephew. Now the New King James Version and others translate it, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Most commentaries that I looked at agree with the New King James Version translation here. Uh, that particular Greek word, does appear to go much more closely with the idea of cousin. Either way, Barnabas is related to John Mark either as his uncle or as his cousin, and we can see that God has blessed Barnabas and his family members with faith and made them encouragers. So, moving on. Many were gathered together praying. That's what was happening as Peter arrived. Note the word many. Their midweek prayer meeting was crowded. Uh, their midweek prayer meeting was crowded. Note, commentary says, it is good for Christians to have private meetings for prayer, especially in times of distress, and not to let fall nor forsake such assemblies. And so was this a prayer meeting called by the church leadership, or was it one that sprung up out of general concern? It's not entirely clear, but in either case, it's instructive to us about how the Lord moves in his people to bring them together to pray and to cry out to him together in the same space, not over Zoom during times of crisis. What were they doing? They were praying, brothers and sisters. They were praying. This was a prayer meeting. They talked to the Lord far more than they talked to one another. And I want us also to note that it was late at night. Commentary says they continued in prayer in token of their importunity. They did not think it enough once to have presented his case to God, but they did it again and again. Thus men ought always to pray and not to faint. As long as we are kept waiting for a mercy, we must continue praying for it. How long had they been meeting? How long had they been praying? We don't know. But we, it is surely suggested to us that it had been a while because here they are praying at night still together. Next, 
Note also that they were still praying for Peter's deliverance even after the prayer had already been answered. They were in the midst of a God can answer prayer mindset as they prayed. God can answer prayer. God can answer prayer. When God's answered prayer shows up in their midst as a living, breathing, freed Peter, how will they respond? How long will it take them to transition from God can answer prayer to God will answer prayer? Commentary says Peter came to them when they were thus employed, which was an immediate present answer to their prayer. It was as if God should say, you are praying that Peter may be restored to you now. Here he is. While they are speaking, I will hear. That's Isaiah 65, 24. Thus the angel was sent with an answer of peace to Daniel's prayer while he was praying in Daniel 9. Jesus said, ask and it shall be given. And so we can just pause and take note that we should have this, we should have this kind of expectancy as we pray. Not demanding this. Not like rubbing the genie bottle and God becoming obliged to us. No. But there should be an expectancy so that if there is an immediate miraculous answer to prayer, perhaps we can learn from them and be a little less astonished. Marvel, wonder, rejoice, but not necessarily express unbelief. Because that appears as though that kind of snuck in there a little bit, as we'll see. So what happens next? So Rhoda is there. This is verses 13 and 14. You can't help but love Rhoda. There's a lot to learn from her. Um, and as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. So Rhoda, for some reason, ends up being the one, I don't know if she was in charge of watching the door or if she just happened to hear it. But in any case... This, this girl did not know how to respond. She's so excited, she just runs off. Uh, now, note also that this gate does not miraculously open of its own accord. There's a contrast here. But remains closed because of the excited gladness of a girl named Rhoda. I mean, part of Rhoda is that we can bear with each other, right? Sometimes we all do silly things, foolish things, even unkind things in the midst of our emotions, whether it be excitement or whatever it might be. And we just want to kind of take a minute and, give each other some space to kind of get through that, right? Who, who knows how Peter responded, right? He's been in prison, he's hounded, he's probably scared he's about to go back to prison, and the girl runs off and leaves him there at the street at the door. Um, commentary says, the iron gate which opposed his enlargement opened of itself without so much as once knocking at it. But the door of his friend's house that was to welcome him does not open of its own accord, but must be knocked at, long knocked at, lest Peter should be puffed up. Now here's how the commentary, this is one way to look at it. For Peter's sake. Lest Peter should be puffed up by the honors which the angel did him. He meets with this mortification by a seeming slight which his friends put upon him. Peter, you could see maybe Peter's thinking, well, I'm Peter. Of course that angel delivered me. You know, maybe there's that thing. So this would certainly have helped Peter with that a little bit. We all need that to some extent in our lives, do we not? Now, instead of letting Peter inside, Rhoda runs back, announces to everyone that Peter himself stood outside the door of the gate knocking. Now, they don't believe her. Uh, the commentary says, sometimes in a transport of affection to our friends, we do that which is unkind. In an ecstasy of joy, she forgets herself and open not the gate. And so we can learn from Rhoda, and we all have been like Rhoda. We all have Rhodas in our lives, and we don't really want to be like Rhoda, but we can learn from her 
We want to be excited and glad like Rhoda, but we want to be able to think straight when that happens. Note Rhoda's excited actions should not be interpreted as rudeness on her part. We would all do well to remember Rhoda whenever we are filled with gladness and excitement at the Lord's work. How we can say and do things that are not helpful in the midst of our emotions. We can say and do things that are not helpful in the midst of our emotions. And so uh, let's not only temper that in ourselves by God's grace, but also be aware that that can happen and, and just be very gracious to one another. Especially in the context of answered prayers. When we're seeing the Lord work and we're all marveling. So how do they reply? How do they respond? Unbelief and astonishment. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. The disciples simply do not believe this girl, Rhoda. They look at her, you are beside yourself. And so it's, it's as if, you know, they know better. They're trying to kind of help her grow up a little bit. Uh, the commentary says, But when she spoke of Peter's being there, they said, Thou art mad, it is impossible it should be he, for he is in prison. Of course, you know, because they're the adults. They know these things, right? On with the commentary. Sometimes that which we most earnestly wish for, we are most backward to believe. Because we are afraid of imposing upon ourselves as the disciples who, when Christ had risen, believed not for joy. However, she stood to it that it was he. She's like, no, this is really Peter. So these disciples, they have, and this is going to be important as we consider ourselves and applying this to ourselves. These disciples, they have this mustard seed of faith necessary to what? To gather together, right? So they're not just praying alone at their home. That would require faith. But they have a mustard seed of faith to gather together and to be there at night, to be inconvenienced. But their faith was not enough to immediately believe God's immediate answer to their prayers. So you see the belief and the unbelief combined together there. Now, she keeps imploring, telling them, no, this is Peter. So even when they believe that she has actually seen something that at least sounds like Peter in her mind, they still don't believe it's Peter. So they have to... They're too confused. They have to come up with some explanation and they say, it's his angel. So their incredulity is so strong that they must come up with some other explanation for the facts. So what could this mean? Commentary says, some have thought that by Peter's angel no other was meant than some messenger from Peter, which they might expect from him in such a case as he was in. Now, though, this word for angel signifies a messenger or an angel indifferently, yet how, how could Rhoda then know it had been to, to have been Peter's voice? So that doesn't really make sense, right? A messenger's voice being no more like his that sent him than another man's. They did probably mean some angel that had assumed Peter's shape and imitated his voice. And the Jews, having had a constant opinion that at least every good man hath a guardian angel which God appoints for him, appoints to him for a means of his preservation, might be apt to imagine that this was that angel whose charge St. Peter was. So the idea of guardian angel may have been on their minds, or the idea of an angel taking the form of Peter might have been on their minds. 
So in that brief moment of astonishment, they searched for an explanation. They're trying to find an answer that makes sense. Because, of course, Peter's in prison. Right? They know that. <laughs> How often are we like that, right? Well, we know, and then we, don't, we can't receive the truth. See, we should not use their thinking at this time as some sort of solid explanation about guardian angels or angelic theology. Right? We see the progression of theological understanding in the lives of the disciples before us throughout the Gospels, even now throughout the book of Acts. So they're in a, a moment of crisis and prayer and confusion. So we can't use this as some solid place to define angelic theology. Commentary says, we are sure that the angels are ministering spirits for the good of the heirs of salvation, right? We get that from the book of Hebrews. We can plant a flag there about angelic theology going on, that they have a charge concerning them and pitch their tents round about them. And we need not be solicitous that every particular saint should have his guardian angel when we are assured he has a guard of angels. So whether we have a guardian angel, or whether we have guards of angels, we know that God blesses us, helps us via his angels, as if he's doing it himself. Because we're going to see that Peter says, the Lord delivered me from prison. Now, one thing cannot be denied, though, here in this situation. There's still a knocking at the door, okay? It's going on. Peter's like, I really need to get out of the street. So when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. They heard the knocking, and even hearing the knocking, they're still thinking something other than Peter's not in prison. So their, their bedrock miscalculation, Peter's in prison. Peter's not in prison. Peter's here at the door. So this word astonished means to throw out of position, to displace, to amaze, to throw into wonderment, to make someone astounded, to even be out of one's mind, to be besides oneself. Even insane sometimes this word can be used. And so our astonishment, our marveling, when what we're seeing doesn't match with the reality we previously believed in, we can come up with some really zany ideas to try to explain the difference between what is real and what we thought was real. So this Greek word has been used by Luke six times in the book of Acts already, and also it was used of the disciples' astonishment of hearing of Christ's resurrection in Luke 24. They've been here before. Maybe not all of these people in this room, but we've heard of believers going through this. This is a frequent response of God's people when the Lord moves powerfully in their midst. This astonishment, this, that we have to transition through this astonishment, through this unbelief, as we accept the new reality of what God has done. As God's people learn of God's will via His actions, we marvel and rejoice at what He is doing. We move from God can answer prayer believing that, crying out to him, to God has answered this prayer. And it's via this experience of astonishment. And this often shows not only our faith, but also our all, all too often attendant unbelief. <clears throat> because, you know, if we didn't have a false belief intermingled with reality, we wouldn't have something to get rid of. There wouldn't be that astonishment. That astonishment comes because what we thought was true and we were really convinced was true is not true. 
They believed that prison was holding Peter. They were looking at the prison. They were believing in those prison guards. They were trusting in those chains. They were looking at the power of Herod. And that's what we do. In their time of crisis, they knew where to go, but they were still in their minds chained to this belief that Herod had more power than God. Somewhere. Somewhere in their minds. Or at the very least, that, well, God wouldn't really work like that. So what happens next? Well, Peter tells them the story. He introduces them into the reality of what has happened. He brings them into it. And then he gives them instructions, and then he leaves. But motioning to them with his hands to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. So I want you to imagine in your life those areas where you've been praying toward and nothing's happened. Think about that. What is your attitude towards those prisons, those shackles that you pray toward? And how would you respond if that person you've been praying for called you up and said, I am saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has crushed me under the weight of my guilt and my sin. And thank you for praying for me. Or someone knocked on that back door right there and came walking in and said, I've heard that bell every Sunday and every time I hear that bell ring, I've been convicted of my sin and I want to be here and learn how to be a Christian. What if you went to a high school reunion and someone walked up to you and said, I want to know how to be a Christian. We could go on and on, right? So we should have these thoughts in our mind as we pray these things and be expecting the Lord to move, crying out to God for Him to move and being having the same importunity that we see from the church here. All of that to say they talked a lot when Peter walked in, and wouldn't you? If someone did walk in and we suddenly started hearing all these, we, there'd be a lot of, somebody would eventually have to say, hold on, hold on, wait a minute, let's, that's what Peter has to do. So they're talking, likely many questions, many happy greetings, checking him out, you know, looking for that little scar or that missing tooth or whatever. To, you know, this is really Peter. And his commotion is noisy enough to drown out his words. So he has to motion with his hands for them to keep silent. No, no, come on, guys. No, no. He has to get them quiet. Commentary says, when he came to the company that were gathered together with so much zeal to pray for him, they gathered about him with no less zeal to congratulate him on his deliverance. And herein they were so noisy that when Peter himself begged them to consider what peril he was yet in, if they should be overheard, he could not make them hear him, but was forced to beckon to them with the hand to hold their peace and had much ado thereby to command silence. So Rhoda was so glad that she wouldn't open the gate, and now they're so glad they won't be quiet. You know, she wouldn't open the gate, and they won't shut their mouths because of their emotions. They're so excited, and they're not really thinking about, oh, you know what, what if, what, if the, what if they're looking for Peter? You know, we need to be kind of getting back into the moment here. So Peter then goes on and tells them the story of how the Lord saved him out of prison. The Lord saved him. Peter did not give the credit to the angel, but to the Lord, to Jesus himself. Now, I'm sure he told that the angel brought him out. He probably told them he thought it may have was a vision. 
I'm sure he told them about the chains falling off and the gate opening up. And who knows what was going on with the guards, if you considered that? Did the Lord just put them in a trance where there was like no time passed and they're, in their experience they were there and then they blinked and then Peter's gone and the shackles were on the ground and the doors open? We don't know. But they didn't move, apparently. They didn't make any efforts to stop him. They got the angel zap put on them of some sort, whatever it was. Wouldn't you love to see that? That's going to be one of the things. I want to see how, how do these angels did this. What, what, what did God do? <laughs> he declared unto them how the Lord Jesus had by an angel brought him out of prison. So this is instructive to us. When God delivers us, we want to give him the credit. When God works in our lives, we want to give him the credit. When he uses secondary means to bless us and to answer prayers, we want to give him the credit. Right? We don't want to be so skeptical that we say, well, you know, I don't know, maybe that would have happened anyways, even if I hadn't have prayed. We don't want to be that way. We want to give the Lord credit. Peter also wants this group of praying saints to convey what has happened to James and all the brethren. Who is this James? This is James, not the brother of John. This is James, the brother of Jesus himself. And he is to be informed of what Jesus has done for Peter. And so this is the process of James, the brother of Jesus, coming to the forefront as a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And the rest of the church, not just James, is to also be informed. So good tidings like this will encourage the church. When God answers prayers, when he moves, we spread the word. We tell people about it. We encourage one another in what God has done. Commentary says, He would have James and his company to know of his deliverance, not only that they might be eased of their pain and delivered from their fears concerning Peter, but that they might return thanks to God with him and for him. Observe, though Herod had slain one James with the sword, yet here was another James, and that in Jerusalem too, that stood up in his room to preside among the brethren there. For when God has work to do, he will never want instruments to do it with. So Peter then leaves this prayer meeting and goes somewhere else probably in order to protect himself and to protect them from being captured. It doesn't tell us that, but the situation, that seems uh, a very likely deduction. Commentary says, Peter had nothing more to do for the present than to shift for his own safety, which he did accordingly. He departed and went to, into another place more obscure and therefore more safe. He knew the town very well and knew where to find a place that would be a shelter to him. Note, says Matthew Henry, even the Christian law of self-denial and suffering for Christ has not abrogated and repealed the natural law of self-preservation and care for our own safety as far as God gives an opportunity of providing for it by lawful means. So Peter was not required to at that very moment, go back into the temple and to start preaching again. We saw that in the past, and we, we recall, don't we, that specifically the angel told him to. He was commanded to go back and to continue preaching, but not this time. So we have to use wisdom in these situations. <clears throat> so, praise the Lord for this episode, for how God delivered Peter and for the example of Rhoda and, and these group of faithful disciples who needed more faith, <clears throat> what can we learn from them? What can we learn from this event? Some questions. Do you know 
that your unbelief, your sin, cannot nullify your prayer of faith, even if your faith is tiny, 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 tiny. So when you pray and you have faith, your prayers are heard. Even if the ratio there is a lot more unbelief than faith. This should encourage you. Do you know that the Lord sees and receives your little bitty tiny, tiny faith prayers? Do you understand that? This should encourage you to, to more prayer, to see your Father's love. Does this great love of your Father in heaven, because that's what's behind all of this, is God's love for his people. Does his love, his ever-present love, his active love in the here and the now, not just the past, cause you to have greater gratitude and greater love and greater praise towards God? Is this true in your life? As we consider this event, it seems as though with more faith, we can grow and praise God more and love God more and have a greater motivation to pray. So, going on, does your father's love, as you consider your father's love for you now, does this increase your desire to pray? Does your father's love increase the fervency of your prayers? Perhaps at the beginning of the sermon there was a a spark or a flame, as you consider God's love, is it warmer? Is it brighter? Is it stronger? Do you look forward with greater eagerness to your next opportunity to pray? Next, does this consideration of your Heavenly Father's love for you increase your desire to participate in prayer meetings, whether they're called by church leadership or whether they occur as a result of the movement of the people of God. Does this increase your desire to participate in times of prayer with the saints of God? Whether it be here with Foothills members, or whether it be other opportunities that you have to pray with Christians. Does the love of your Father in Heaven prompt you now to consider pursuing those opportunities? Next, does your father's love increase your desire for your home to be a place of fervent prayer? What, how would you respond if people showed up at your home to pray? Is your home known as a place of hospitality, as a place open to the people of God for prayer? Okay, now putting it into the broader perspective, context of now, do we live in a time of crisis? If we can say that this group of believers was prompted to be in prayer the way they were because of that crisis, now maybe they would have been there otherwise. I can't say for sure they wouldn't have been, but we know why they were there. They were there to pray for Peter. This was a time of crisis. Do we live in a time of crisis? Are the people of God 
facing a time of crisis in our world today? Is there persecution of our brothers and sisters occurring in our world today? Now, they didn't have global knowledge. They had local knowledge. We have global knowledge. Do we live in a time of local crisis where brothers and sisters in our area are being persecuted, mistreated? Do we live in a time of the rejection of Christ as Lord? Do we live in a time of anemia and weakness amongst the church? Do we live in a time of growing unrighteousness, deception, wickedness, idolatry, and blasphemy? Do we live in a time like that? Do we live in a time where so-called churches are promoting, Christian churches are promoting ungodly wickedness and ordaining those who do these things? Do we live in a time where our elected officials are defending and promoting ungodliness and wickedness? I think we live in a time of crisis. They were awake to the crisis. Are we? They responded with prayer when they were awakened that they live in a time of crisis. <clears throat> For me, I want to confess that my tendency in the time of crisis is to become a nerd who overfocuses on the crisis. I can tell you all the reasons the whole coronavirus pandemic was a joke and a reason to further centralize tyranny in our nation and in this world. I mean, I can, I can quote you people's names and books and dates, and, but have I prayed? So for me, this, was, this convicted me. So stepping back, does our Father in Heaven love us today in our time of crisis like He loved His church then? Is the Lord Jesus Christ reigning upon the same throne of grace now that He did then? Is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father and the Son, together, pouring out the Holy Spirit in the hearts of His people continually now like He did then? Are we forgiven and welcome before the throne of grace, beloved children of God now like they were then? Does this same angel still dwell in the heavens? Might this mighty being perhaps be here today listening to this message? Do we have any less reason to expect today that our Father in heaven, when we come to him during this time of crisis, will respond? Who are the Herods of our day? What are the prisons of our day? What are the chains of our day? What are the four, the four squads of soldiers of our day? And do we understand that we live in a time of crisis? And do we understand that our Father still hears us? And that the best response, the first response, the response that must be first and ongoing is to pray. Amen? Let us pray.
Our Father in heaven, how we rejoice that today the Lord Jesus Christ reigns on the throne of the universe and that we, your people, are the beloved apple of your eye because of Jesus. And we know that even now with the Herods of this world, that Jesus reigns. And we know that in this time of crisis, we can cry out to you. Oh, Father, awaken us, your people, here and throughout this globe to the time of crisis in which we live. Give us eyes of understanding. Give us hearts that are tender and compassionate. Give us minds that are filled with wisdom. And grant to us a fervency to cry out to you in ongoing prayer during our time of ongoing crisis. We cry out to you, O God, that all those who set themselves against you as Herod did would end up as he did. In Jesus' name, amen.